Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. This was like the Baton Death March, except you didn't hear about it in a newsreel. You just stepped out of your house one day, and there were these skeletal figures staggering by. That's Brian Patrick O'Malley, and he's published a new article on the mistreatment of prisoners in and around New York City. He calls it The Horror Show, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of the new book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life, by Albert Louis Zamboni, available now. Hello everyone, welcome back to Dispatches, I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we continue with our discussion of the treatment of American prisoners of war in and around New York City during the American Revolution. Last week, we spoke with Katie Turner Getty, regarding some of the terrible circumstances experienced on the HMS Jersey. And today, we speak with Brian Patrick O'Malley, who gives us an incredible in-depth conversation about the mechanics and practicalities of keeping prisoners of war, and gives us some great insight into how George Washington and his lieutenants dealt with the release of those prisoners. It's not a well-discussed part of the American Revolution, but it's extremely well documented. Prisoners of war, as we'll hear in the interview today, were the most precious commodities that an army had for both seeking concessions as well as negotiating from a position of leverage. Even though we don't talk about it a lot, it's not glamorous, and at times it's it's, it's quite gory, there's an incredible amount of primary resources and documentation about these exchanges. Specifics mattered. Details mattered. Being technical was essential. Because after all, you're dealing with people's lives. So, when we discuss the horror show, as the article is called by Brian Patrick O'Malley, and it's a doozy of an article, certainly one you want to check out. It goes into much more detail than we have time for on the podcast. Pair that with our previous conversation with Katie Turner Getty to get a real genuine understanding of just what the sacrifice of war looked like. What it looked like to fight for liberty and freedom. This war changed a lot of lives. This war broke a lot of rules. As Brian Patrick O'Malley mentions today, the British actually before the American Revolution had a pretty good reputation for its treatment of prisoners. Well, that reputation took a pretty serious blow as a result of the War of American Independence. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Brian Patrick O'Malley. Brian Patrick O'Malley, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I studied history in college, uh, got a bachelor's and master of arts in it. And uh, right now I'm working in real estate and in my free time doing some writing and once in a blue moon something gets published. This can be a difficult topic to discuss, certainly difficult to research. 
Uh, what first drew your interest in this topic? It was around 2004 after uh, David Hackett Fisher published Washington's Crossing, which discussed in passing, well, not in passing, it was one of several important themes of the book, was the treatment of prisoners. And, of course, it was rather timely because right about then, the treatment of prisoners in the first few years of the War on Terror was in the news, and it was a bit of a controversy. So the topic seemed rather current, as well as an interesting historical issue. And uh, once you looked at this winter of 1776 to 77, uh, you realize there's quite a story there, and I just wanted to understand what was going on then. I think it's really important to really understand what's going on with these prisoners and prisoner exchanges, to understand the context of the story. So could you tell us what was going on in and around New York City in 1776 and 1777? Sure. Well, just shortly before um, the British occupation, um, there had been a fire. Roughly a quarter of the city had been destroyed. Um, now, the British blamed the departing Americans. The Americans either blamed the British or uh, they thanked Providence for an intervention that didn't work in the uh, the Brits' favor. But um, the other thing is they just came to, um, they came to New York a year after withdrawing from within a year of drawing out of uh, Boston. And uh, everybody knew that was going to be the next target, was New York. And the, basically, the British fleet showed up with over 300 boats. David McCullough describes this in great detail. Uh, one Pennsylvania rifleman described it as London afloat, is what it looked like. There was a fleet bringing 32,000 troops when the population of New York City had only been 25,000. So most New Yorkers left the city at this point. And what you had in their place was a British occupation followed by, within only a few months, about 11,000 loyalists from all over the rest of the country. So you had a large new population in New York that had a grudge against the revolutionary movement. What sort of reputation did the British have for their treatment of prisoners before the war? Uh, Cohen, in his book, Yankee Sailors in um, British Jails, uh, talks about the reputation that the British had built in previous wars. Erica Charters talks about that in a book she's recently written about it, too. Um, they had a pretty good reputation for the treatment of uh, French sailors who were prisoners in England. Um, they had only like a 10% mortality rate during the War of Austrian uh, secession. Um, secession rather. And uh, it was unique to the occupation of New York and, well, and also Newport. The same thing happened. And later in Charleston and Savannah, the reliance on improvised detention centers like prison ships that became overcrowded. Uh, became pretty notorious for their squalor and disease. And uh, in New York, they did manage to see some rather large buildings 
that managed to work as warehouses, uh, sugar refineries or sugar houses, as they called them. Most non-Anglican churches became prisons. Uh, so they had a number of large houses that, um, large places that detained maybe several hundred at a time. In Newport, they had the small local jail, but that wasn't huge. So of course there was a a prison ship parked out of Newport, Rhode Island, while the Brits were there too. Um, and also the um, the reliance on the two thirds ration which, by the way, British ships, um, British uh, transport ships would have two-thirds rations for the troops, British troops being transported. But the thing to keep in mind is those ships had victuallers that sold additional food and drink for the soldiers. So British soldiers were never really expected to live just on those rations. But uh, everybody all the officers back then would often talk about. That's the same thing our troops get on transports. I think one of the most compelling parts of your article is your discussion of officer parole and its unique role in this whole exchange during the time period. Could you describe officer parole and and what their special treatment was like? Sure. And I'll acknowledge this relies a good bit on Edwin G. Burroughs' discussion of this in Forgotten Patriots. But since European nations assumed that officers were all going to be drawn from the aristocracy. This was a gentlemanly agreement between the officers of competing powers. Once um, officers surrendered, they had the uh, option of parole, where they gave their word as gentlemen that they would stay within certain bounds of um, an occupied city or an enemy city where they were held, but they would have freedom of movement. They could uh, draw on uh, credit uh, because being families from aristocratic backgrounds, they presumably had some credit to draw upon. So they could rent private lodgings, hire servants, and pretty much maintain a standard of living that they'd be accustomed to. And uh, in some cases, they might be given parole and even sent back to their um, their home country on the on their promise that they wouldn't rejoin the war until they were formally exchanged or whatever the duration of their pledge was. Why did the administrators of the British Army in New York release so many prisoners so quickly? Well, for several months, uh, the prisoners had... They'd been alive, but they'd been very sluggish. Uh, Some unsympathetic observers... Uh, had had called them lazy. Um, A few sympathetic ones, like uh, a British uh, captain named uh, Frederick Mackenzie, called them low-spirited. And what happened was the first few, um, the first phase of um, starvation isn't really visible emaciation. That develops later. What the body tends to do There's a book called Hunger Disease by uh, doctors who themselves were prisoners in the Warsaw Ghetto uh, during the Holocaust. And while they were suffering from it, they also helped other prisoners and and documented the uh, symptoms. And they were surprised to find that actually starving people could drag out existence for three or four months before they showed the real collapse in health. 
But in the meantime, they were like hibernating animals. They, um, they, the heart rate is lowered. Um, there's very little movement and what there is, is very slow. And so those accusations of laziness are very consistent with observations made of starving people in other contexts. Um, but what happens is at the end of that first few months, then the worst of the symptoms become evident. And that's when the, the collapse in numbers would happen. Uh, emaciation becomes obvious. Um, the, the throat becomes affected by it, which was, it was a striking um, symptom to be noted both in World War II starvation cases and then also uh, the witness in, um, in Connecticut who says they, the returning prisoners were mere skeletons unable to creep or speak. And then we had the uh, pastor, the uh, chaplain in Pennsylvania who said that their voices were feeble and not distinctly to be heard. That's also sort of an end stage death by starvation. These were kind of the symptoms that they were showing. Uh, and what happened in the last week, basically, of December 1776 is that how the British general pretty much starts December with about 3,000 prisoners because 800 or so have already forcibly, under whatever degree of duress, have already joined British um, regiments or loyalist regiments. So he's still got about 3,000 prisoners, but in the last week of December and maybe the first few of January, he's lost about 1,100 at once. And so he goes from being able to demand 3,000 British um, soldiers from Washington ex in exchange for his prisoners to having only about 2,200. And he knows now that they're undeniably in a horrible state where before they looked lazy. Now they're, they're dead and dying and it's just undeniable. So he loads them on ships and dumps them very near New York and places like Milford, Connecticut or South Amboy, New Jersey. And uh, he gets them out of New York as quickly as possible. And by January 27th, the last few are sent out. And so he's, he's done that mainly so that he can still have something to claim from Washington as far as prisoners. Do we have any evidence regarding, say, the treatment of British prisoners by American patriots during the war? It's not as is one might have thought and there have been pretty recently very good books on it that have looked at particularly in Pennsylvania and again partly it's I hate to say luck there was an American policy they did want prisoners treated well because that would make their cause look legitimate but also their circumstances were different where they, the Americans were not confined to cities and whatever scant country around it they could seize they had wide open country to choose from they could send hessian prisoners 
to small towns where the local population spoke German. Uh, and even when Brits were British soldiers were kept in uh, in barracks or cantonments, they they would work. They would leave during the day. They could hire themselves out to local farmers and craftsmen. They uh, they could support themselves and buy beyond whatever rations they were getting. They could support themselves pretty well. They they lived a much healthier life. Uh, than those held in cities like Charleston later in the war or New York, New York throughout most of it. So much of the time, particularly in these, in these, the first few years, uh, before some states went towards retaliatory measures like starting their own prison ships, um, Connecticut had, a, I think it had, you know, had a, a, a ship or two, um, I think they stayed even healthy in those, though, because at one point uh, the prisoners rose up and took the crew to New York as prisoners. So their their health remained pretty robust on that prison ship, I think it's safe to say. In your article, you detail the discussions between George Washington uh, and William Howe and his lieutenants uh, during these prisoner exchanges. And it's always funny to me. Uh, because we always think of Washington trying to be a general leading this uh, army to victory. We don't tend to think of the small mundane tasks uh, that he has to deal with on a regular basis. And this one, because it dealt with people's lives, was one of the most important. So could you kind of detail that a bit for us? Uh, maybe summarize what what some of the, the finer points of your article said? Sure. Uh, well, Helen Washington... Um, appointed lieutenant um, appointed uh, lieutenant colonels to negotiate the exchange and um, for the prisoners that were already released and uh, basically it came down to uh, Walcott who was speaking on behalf of British General Howe uh, was saying well you know you guys have already uh, paraphrasing of course you you've already agreed to an exchange you know, 2,200, a little over 2,200 have been sent out. You owe us exactly that many in return. That was the agreement, soldier for soldier, officer for officer. Um, and like how Walcott just wanted to treat it as if the exchange had already been agreed upon and it already happened. But he also wanted to give a little bit of a threat to some of the officers that had been sent out on parole who were back enjoying their freedom in America and by saying, well, you know, technically all those soldiers we sent out and all those officers until they're officially exchanged, it, they, they remain, they remain house prisoners and he can call them right back to New York, which is of course a, a morbid threat in regard to the soldiers because most of them are, are dead within a few months. So it would be a, a bizarre thing to call them back, but it was meant to threaten those, those officers, many of whom were in somewhat better health. Uh, but the slip was, he just admitted that that wasn't an official exchange. How had sent all those people out without having a, a definite agreement in place. And even though he released them and they, 
died, some a day after they were released, some a, a few weeks or a month or so after, they still officially died in his custody. And he wasn't really, he hadn't really freed himself from responsibility for that. But it was a bizarre exchange. Uh, he, Walcott uses the uh, phrase delivered over alive, as in they were alive the split second we let go of them. And the fact that one or two of them died that instant or the next day or the next week doesn't matter. Uh, it, it was a bizarre claim. And uh, he sensed it when he realizes getting nowhere with his American counterpart, um, a Lieutenant uh, Colonel uh, Harrison. He just writes a note to Washington, really not even addressed to anybody, but he has um, Lord Cornwallis send it right to, to Washington. And at that point, Washington takes up the argument with Howe rather than arguing with um, somebody not of comparable rank and really lays into a Walcott's argument, but with Howe. And like you said, the argument goes back and forth. The letters are um, sometimes comical if the subject weren't so great. Every now and then, Washington slips in some sarcastic barb, uh, like when Howe says, they had the, the most airy buildings. And, and Washington's like, I don't think anybody's going to dispute that they were airy, but you know whether or not that was really healthy in the dead of winter <laughs> is sort of a subject of debate. It was a bizarre exchange. And, but like you said, there were a lot of technicalities they hung up on. Um, whether or not they were going to honor strictly the wording of it, soldier for soldier, or whether they're going to honor the principle that it's sort of understood, even if it's not explicit, that both sides are going to take reasonable care of the prisoners in their hands. It, it was a bizarre exchange. You frame this release of prisoners as something of a tragedy for the American psyche. Uh, what do the primary sources say about the people who were there uh, and saw the release of these uh, walking dead, if you would. One officer in Connecticut said that, uh, and I'll have to paraphrase, humanity cannot but drop a tear at sight of the poor, miserable, starved objects. Um, the sermons by um, various pastors, some right after, like uh, the chaplain, Brackenridge in Pennsylvania talking about their miserable appearance and the sight of them with their eyes sunk and hid within their head, um, their legs swollen from it turned out to be the retention of water in the extremities because of the weakened heart from starvation. Um, their, um, the bellies sunk and contracted you know, contracted to the ribs, it was, it was treated with a great deal of, it might be theatrical, but it was, it was pretty horrifying. And, um, in a number of cases, you have, um, people in the nearest towns who were near the sites of where they were dropped off. Um, it was a, it was a true shock to them. Um, Henry Mullenberg, back in Pennsylvania would be visiting a returned prisoner, um, a German speaking American who was dropped off in new England. 
and he described how the the local town near where he was dropped turned out for the burial of a young German soldier who was about 15 years old. So these towns were, even if it wasn't their own hometown, it was, um, and it was a complete stranger. Uh, It involved the compassion of the whole community. They'd turn out for funerals. There'd be burial details for people who died on the side of the road. Um, There's, there's still a company in Connecticut that maintains um, the grounds, uh, the roadside grounds where an officer died on the side of the road after walking away from Milford. He was not far from his hometown, but he didn't make it. And his there's a stone marking where he's buried now. Um, this, I, I believe, was pretty much a traumatic thing because as late as 1782, um, John Witherspoon in, Penn, in um, New Jersey was saying that we in this state cannot forget the sight of the emaciated specters. And I think it must have been very traumatic. This was like the Baton Death March, except you didn't hear about it in a newsreel. You just stepped out of your house one day and there were these skeletal figures staggering by. Um, it was pretty shocking. And I think when they returned to their hometowns, Brackenridge describes a hypothetical scenario in which a town crowds around the one living survivor asking where all his friends are. People want to know about their missing husbands or sons who simply haven't come back. And Brackenridge gives a very moving uh, recounting of how a, a prisoner might say, oh, well, you know, your friend died the second weekend from hunger and cold and oh and he this other person he died because the food on the prison ships were so terrible was so terrible and i think you heard that i think that happened in small towns and in farm communities from virginia up to up to new hampshire as people managed to get back home you mentioned that you were interested in, uh, in, in writing some more. Uh, what are you researching right now? Well, I'm looking into the uh, Seminole Indians during the Revolutionary War. They were trying to rem- uh, remain somewhat independent in Florida, but still be a legitimate part of the Creek Nation. So it was a tricky time for them, and i uh, researching that right now. Brian Patrick O'Malley, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>